Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's great books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 200 of the great books over the next 10 years and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each of the great books. Today, I'm going to cover the complete poems of Inhedewana, the world's first author. I originally had Gilgamesh as the first book of the Great Books Reading Project. I thought that was the oldest. And then this book came out just two months ago in March. And it's pitched as the world's first author. And so I had to replace book number one on my list of great books. And it is now this one in Hedawana. So what's the oldest book that you can think of? Or how about this? Who is the oldest author that, that comes to mind? Well, this year has already been quite a, a shift in thinking for me uh, in, in terms of, of thinking of what's the oldest book. And without ever having consciously thought about it, I, I probably just would have subconsciously assumed that the Bible was the oldest book that we had. And mainly just because of the way it starts off with in the beginning. But what I learned this year is that Gilgamesh was a, was a book, uh, it was a story, it was compiled a thousand years, or you know, very rough, a thousand years before the first parts of the Bible. And that Gilgamesh even contains a flood story, a deluge story. And this, again, is uh, r- roughly a thousand years before we, we are, are reading about Noah and the flood story there. So what about the, that's that on the book side. What about the author side of things? I've, I have a spreadsheet for this Great Books Project where I'm listing the 200 books that I plan to read. And in, in it, and it just goes from the oldest to newest. And there, there's this huge blank spot in the author column for the first series of books here. Uh, so Gilgamesh, we, we can't attribute that to an individual author. The Rig Veda, which I'm going through now, again, we can't attribute that to an individual author. Same with the writings from ancient Egypt, which is the other uh, book there at the beginning. And in fact, the first author name that comes up on that list is Homer. And... That was for, that's for the Iliad, which I have coming up on the list. So let's put things into perspective here. Homer is right is the Homer and the Iliad. That's that's roughly 700 BC, and Hedewana is 2300 BC, and Hedewana is roughly 1500 years before Homer. As Sophus Hell says in the introduction, we are closer right now in history to Julius Caesar than Julius Caesar was to Enheduanna. And I am holding in my hands a book of poetry attributed to her. This is what Sophus Hell asks in the introduction. What would the history of Western literature look like if it began not with Homer and his war-hungry heroes, but with a woman from ancient Iraq who sang her hymns to the goddess of chaos and change? End quote. It's a brilliant question. It's, it's, it's amazing to think about. And this, this really does have the potential to shift things. What if this was the first book on lists going forward? of the great literature of history. What if it started with this? What if what if people began to consider a female priestess from Mesopotamia from from uh, Ur, the same city where Abraham where Abram came from? What if she was associated as the first 
author in history, that we have a work attributed to an individual instead of Homer. And not just 50 years before Homer, or 500 or 1,000, but 1,500 years before Homer. This is really exciting stuff. It's an exciting time to be alive uh, as we as we get more of these tablets from these these ancient civilizations. So let me start off this episode by just going through the who, what, where, and when. So to start off on the who, who is in Hedewana? Who is she? Well, she was the daughter of Sargon. And yes, that sounds like a uh, Lord of the Rings name, but, but Sargon was famous in history for perhaps being the first empire builder. He, he combined a number of city-states in, in the area of, of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia and, uh, and, and is known as, as the first uh, creating the builder of the first empire that the world had ever seen. Now, and Hedwana was his daughter. So Sargon is, is a, a famous figure, figure, and Hedwana is his daughter, and he puts her up, he sets her up as the priestess of Ur in the temple of Nana. Uh, let me take a quick step back in that in Hedwana, the, the language in which it is written in is Sumerian, but it's you, the, the script used is cuneiform. Now, Gilgamesh is also written in cuneiform script, but it's in the, the Akkadian language. And so just like how our letters, we can use those for English or for Spanish or, or Italian, uh, the same with cuneiform, that script could be used for Sumerian, for Akkadian, and there would be uh, slight differences from, from what I understand, but uh, the cuneiform script was, was what was used. Uh, so this work that we're talking about today in Hedewana, that is uh, was written in Sumerian. And there are, there are slightly different names for the gods in Sumerian and Akkadian. Uh, so in, so in Hedewana was the priestess of Ur in the temple of Nana. In Sumerian, it, she, the, the he Nana would be uh, that that's his name in Sumerian. In Akkadian, it's uh, the moon god Sin. And then Nana, that god, is the father of Inanna. Inanna is the Sumerian name, and Ishtar is the Akkadian name. Ishtar should probably ring a bell. If you listen to the, the Gilgamesh episode, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a section in Gilgamesh, in Gilgamesh where Ishtar kind of comes on to Gilgamesh. He turns her down. I'll, I'll get into that in, in just a little bit here. But um, you, you also may have heard of the Ishtar Gate, which is famous in Babylonia uh, or Babylon. And so Ishtar and Inanna are, are the same the same god, and that is the daughter of the god Nana. I, I state all this because these the hymns that are in this uh, the, in, in Hedwana here, they she is writing these hymns to Inanna, who is Ishtar, and so I'll I'll, I'll kind of connect those two later, uh, especially with Gilgamesh. But um, uh, just uh, keep keep those names in mind, Inanna, uh, Ishtar, and so. Uh, the, the leaders of this time would have placed their children into key posts like this. So in, in, in Hedwana's role was to, to prop up the empire of her father by propping up its patron deity. And the patron deity of the old Akkadian empire was Inanna, uh, was, was this god. Uh, and, and I'll read that in just a, in a little bit here. So the who in Hedewana, but but let's go a little deeper into Inanna, uh, this this god. So Inanna and Ishtar. Uh, 
Let me read, and I'm actually going to read here from the Gilgamesh book. And this was also translated by Sophus Hell, and then he has uh, essays at the end of it. So, as I mentioned, Ishtar comes up in Gilgamesh, so I want to read about Ishtar here, and this, again, is from the Gilgamesh book, and then I'll read from the Inhedawana book about Inanna. So here's Ishtar. She is the most important Akkadian goddess, but also constantly associated with all that is unusual, disruptive, and immoral. According to to Zainab Barani, Ishtar is a divine embodiment of cultural exclusion. Societies define themselves by what they are not, by excluding unwanted elements and setting up boundaries for what cannot be permitted. But those norms are often invisible and implicit, and this is why, according to Barani, societies need a figure like Ishtar. She breaks every rule and crosses every boundary and so makes them visible. Again, norms are clearest when they are being broken. Uh, And let me just continue on here a little bit. The stories about Ishtar make the outlines of Babylonian culture easier to see as we follow her violating its rules. In this sense, Ishtar is a lot like Gilgamesh, who has the same instinct for breaking every boundary he bumps into. Like Gilgamesh, Ishtar is constantly excessive, short-sighted, and destructive. Uh, you know, and I'll end the quote there. If you listen to last week's episode, I, I talked about ancient Egypt, and I, I talked about one of the pharaohs, Akhenaten, and how he just turned everything on its head, and how that actually helped me to understand a lot about Egypt. Because when you see everything flipped, when you see somebody go against all the rules, it actually—it's one of those things that just helps you understand what is actually going on at that that time to see kind of the opposite of that. And so that's what Ishtar sounds like. That's what Inanna, the, uh, Ishtar and Inanna, same, again, same, same God there. That's what she sounds like. And so now let me go into the Inhedewana book. And this is, this is one of the, this is from one of the essays by Sophus Hell, the, the translator. And again, now this is about Inanna. And, and the reason I'm going into this is because the poems that Inhedewana wrote are about this goddess. And this is speaking about Inanna. She breaks the rules that hold for others by breaking them, makes them visible. Uh, let me go back just a little bit. But Inanna flouts all these restrictions by meddling in the war, warrior's melee and daring to speak in the assembly of the gods, the ultimate site of political power. However, if Inanna can push through these gendered boundaries, it is precisely because she is the divine embodiment of subversion. She breaks the rules that hold for others and by breaking them makes them visible. The tacit rules that govern society are clearest when they are being transgressed. Mythical rule breakers like Inanna actually play a useful social role by setting up an example of what not to do. Inanna was seen as a counter ideal from which human women were expected to distance themselves, not as an empowering figure for others to emulate. End quote. The reason this is all important is that the hymns that uh, that Inhedewana is writing, the poems that she is writing here, they are they are seeking. Inanna's help. But the picture we get of Inanna is is one of, of almost chaos. Like she just does, she can do all these different things. She can kind of upend things. And that that actually helps you see things. But you're talking about a lot of chaos here. And so in these poems, there's there's chaos going around. And so how 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 do you deal with that? Like uh 
what, what do you, how do you, how, like just as an individual, how do you interact with chaos in the world? And so that's one of the ideas that comes through in this book. And she's, she's entreating a goddess who is kind of a goddess of chaos in a way. So how do you approach that? What, what's the best way to do that? And so that, that's, that's going to lead into the what. So we just went through the, he, the who, which is in Hedawana, and then the god that she is invoking, Inanna who is also Ishtar. So now the what. So the what, we're talking about a hymn here. And in the in the introduction, Sophus Hell, that says that a, a hymn, the goal of a hymn is not to describe the world, but to change it by invoking the gods and enlisting their help. And, uh, end quote. And so that's what you see here. You see in Hedawana, in, 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 uh, in at least one of these poems here, she's, she's kind of buttering up Inanna, the, the goddess, buttering her up and then entreating her to help for a specific thing that has happened. And so just, that may seem like so, you know, this is over 4,000 years ago. What does this have to do with me? But just, can you think of it in your, in your sense of what do you do when things are chaotic? What, what do you do? Like, do you, do you pray? Do you do you go inward? Like, what what do you do when things are chaotic? And if if that, it helped me to kind of think of it that way, and, and to go into this this hymn, this 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 poem, in that sense of, okay, here here is what this this priestess is doing, how she's entreating the god, how she's kind of buttering up the god, and then uh, or goddess, and then entreating her for her help. So the what, again, we're, this, this book is divided into four different hymns. There is the exaltation of Inanna, there's the hymn to Inanna, the temple hymns, and fragmentary hymns. So real quick, just a little bit about each one. The exaltation of Inanna is this, it starts off with this praise to the goddess of Inanna. And, uh, and Hedawana herself has lost her voice. She's lost her ability to persuade, and she's lost her power. She was the priestess of this of this temple in Ur, and someone has come in, Lugal An, uh, Ane, and has, has come in and taken her power away. And so she's had to flee. And so now, in Hedawana is is asking the goddess Inanna for her help. That's the the first hymn that is in this this book. The second one is the hymn to Inanna, and and that's one where uh, where in Hedawana elevates Inanna above all the other gods. So you're, you're reading about all these other gods in there, but it's almost as if she's putting Inanna above all these other gods. And, and it's really interesting to read it just because it, it, it yes, there, it's, it's uh, polytheistic. There's a bunch of gods, but it's almost like Inanna is the supreme god is, is in Hedwana is, is describing her. So that, that hymn, that second one in this book is, is a lot about the attributes of Inanna. Third one is the temple hymns, and this just goes through uh, kind of like a roadmap of the areas that Sargon had had gathered together, had had conquered, and you kind of going through the different temples that are in these areas, and so you're learning about the gods that are in these temples, and uh, it just it gives it it's just gives a really interesting idea of the different areas at this time, and then the temples and gods that were in these different areas. At the very end, we've got these fragmentary hymns. So there's two closing hymns where we're missing a lot of the text, uh, but but uh, just kind of, that's, that's what closes this out. We have all of these tablets in 
fragrance. So this is how I'm going to close out this, this what section. Uh, what happened is in excavations, they would come across a school and there would be all these tablets lined up. And the school, part of it, you know, was intact where these tablets would, would still be in place. And this text in Hedwana, the poems of, of in, in Hedwana, and other texts like Gilgamesh, they would have been copied in school. So this is how students would have learned how to write in cuneiform. And these would have been, you know, the elite of the, of the time, uh, learning to, to, to read and write like this. But they would have practiced on these, these tablets. So in these excavations, uh, there'll just be rows of these, of these tablets that have the works of in Hedwana or have Gilgamesh. And so a lot of these tablets are in museums now, and they, they haven't been read like there, there's a number of them that where scholars have just not had the time to go through them all. So it, it's, it's a really exciting time to be alive in that sense, because we're getting more of Gilgamesh every decade as scholars go through Gilgamesh. Uh, if you read a translation of Gilgamesh now, there are pieces missing. If you read this in Hedwana, there are, there are, there are big pieces that are, are missing. But what if it's in another tablet that we just haven't gotten to? And we'll get a, a larger sense of the story in the next 10 years or sometime in our, in our lifetime. Uh, That's just a really cool, cool thing to think about. So we've gone through who, we've gone through what. Now let's go through where. Again, this is the land of Ur. This is the land of Abram in, in the Hebrew Bible. And it's just amazing to think about that. The, the one hymn I just mentioned, the temple, temple hymns, where it just goes through all these different locations. You just think like this, these are the gods that... Abram would have grown up around these. This is the the mentality, the the mindset, the the cultural what was going on and where what Abram was called away from. And that's just kind of a neat neat thing to think about. And then it's also interesting uh, in comparing to last episode where I talked about ancient Egypt and how it was relatively similar. Like the gods were kind of the. They they would they were similar uh, through through this vast number of, of years and yes there were changes but on on a on a major level there there was a lot of continuity you're you're seeing in these works you're already seeing the gods change and and some gods be super popular and then not later on uh, so I found that to be interesting as well finally here the when when are we talking about this is 2300 BC 1500 years before Homer. Uh, and, and that, that's, that's amazing. That is, that's truly amazing. Uh, Gilgamesh is, they say that's around 2100 BC. And so this is, this is potentially around 200 years before Gilgamesh. Uh, so that's the, the when of, of when this is being compiled or, or, uh, written and that sort of thing. Let me just close out this section here. The, the first segment with the the translator of this work, and that is Sophus Hell. And so I, uh, as part of reading through Gilgamesh, I, I loved Gilgamesh so much. And that was the first book I, I started with this great books project in March. And I got uh, three different translations of it. And the final translation was done by Sophus Hell. And so as I'm reading this, I'm looking up information about Sophus Hell, and I see that he has another book coming out. And, and it's this book, the book I'm talking about right now of Inhedewana. And so this came out on March 28. And I, I just think it's amazing uh, in, in, in the sense of the timing of when I started this great books project. I started it in March of this year. And this Inhedewana book came out March of this year. It's the new oldest book. 
It is the oldest work now attributed attributed to an, an author. It's the world's first author. And so I, it just, I, I, I love that. And uh, I love the versions I've read from Sophus Hell, uh, from Gilgamesh to this in Hedwana. And I love them because you have the translation there, but then you have an introduction and then you have essays at the end. And these essays have been so helpful to me this year in understanding. I, as I read Gilgamesh, as I read in Hedwana, I just have so many questions. Like, what the heck is going on? Why was this written? Who was it written to? And Sophus Hell goes through all these questions that I had and, and answers them and, and brings up other things I hadn't even thought about. And so it, it's, it's made it so exciting. I've, I've, uh, I've really enjoyed going through these versions of the book and I would encourage you to do those as well. Um, I mean, Gilgamesh, there's, there's so many different translations, but, um, just the, the translation, but then also the essays are, are so good. And, uh, with this in Hedawana, just getting the cultural context, what's going on, what makes this so important. I mean, just reading through the poems, I, I wouldn't pick out a lot of things. They, they're kind of weird. Uh, Gilgamesh kind of makes sense. It's, it's a epic story. The poems of Enhedawana are, are, they're a little strange, but, but when you have that explanation in the essays at the end, that was, that was very helpful. So what I did is I read through the poems or, or sorry, I started with the introduction. I read through the poems, I read the essays, and then I went back and read the poems, uh, another time. So that was a long, uh, first segment, probably longer than, than most, but, uh, I'm going to have two other segments in this episode. And so segment two, I'm going to, to talk about the connection to Gilgamesh and then just cover some main themes that I, I came across. I also sent a list of questions to Sophus Hell, the, the translator of, of this, uh, this work that I had while I was reading uh, in Hedwana. And so I'll, I'll, I'll share some of those responses as well, because I thought it was very interesting how he, how he responded. And then in segment three, I will go through the one thing, my one key takeaway from in Hedwana. Well, I forgot to do my uh, reading stats there in the first segment. I usually like to cover that just so you have an idea how long it might take you to read the book. So this is a 180 page book. That's including the poems and Sophus Hell's uh, essays. That took me four hours and four minutes to read. That was over four days. And so 45 pages per day. That was April 20 through 23. So now into how this work connects to Gilgamesh. As you heard me state at the beginning of this episode, I'm trying to, I'm trying to tie ideas for, together from one, just a variety of genres, but then also from a variety of these works, and especially the great books. I want to try to connect what I'm reading as much as I can, and that's why I'm doing them in uh, reverse chronological order, from the oldest to the newest. Uh, I, 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 well, I guess that would be chronological and not reverse, but uh, I'm reading from the oldest to the newest. And uh, for that purpose, I want to try to see connection points. I want to try to see, did this impact this? Or what can we learn from this work that that applies or uh, is, is something that helps me understand better uh, this work? And so I'm actually glad I read Gilgamesh first and then and then came to Nehedwana here because in Gilgamesh, there's this 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 key part of the story where Gilgamesh has just defeated this uh, the, uh, and his buddy in, in Kiru. They've just defeated this this uh, this monster and they come back and there's this goddess Ishtar who is, is she wants Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh turns her down. And one of the reasons 
that he states for turning her down is this. I'm going to read it here. Uh, Here we go. There was a man who, his arm, your childhood lover, Dumuzi, you damned to sorrow year after year. And then here is the part. So just remember that name, Dumuzi. And then here's the part where uh, Gilgamesh comes home. He washed his filthy hair, cleaned his dirty gear, and shook his hair down over his shoulders. He took off his tatters and put on a clean clothes, wrapped in a cloak and tied it with a belt. Then Gilgamesh put on his crown, and Ishtar caught sight of his beauty. Come, Gilgamesh, marry me. Give me the fruit of your body. Be my husband. Make me your wife. Let me ready for you a chariot of lapis lazuli and gold, with golden wheels and caps of amber, draw by demons big mules indeed uh you know i'll stop it there but you get the you get the picture uh gilgamesh has just come home he's taking a shower and ishtar catches sight of his beauty and she wants him so make me your wife he says no and one of the reasons he gives for saying no is what what ishtar did to her childhood lover demuzi so what did she do to demuzi so now I'm shifting back to in Hedawana and I'm looking in the notes. And in here we get a note about Demuzi, and here is what it says. Uh, uh, and remember, Ishtar and Inanna are the same person. So Ishtar is the name used in Gilgamesh, and that's the Akkadian. And then um, Inanna is the Sumerian version. So talking about the same person here, the, the one that Gilgamesh just rejected. So this is in Hedawana. In Inanna's youthful love affair with the shepherd god Demuzi, who in the Sumer- Sumerian is referred to by his mythical epith- epithet, and the Ushmugal of heaven, was one of the central myths about the goddess in a collection of poems known as the love lyrics detail their dalliance. The story of Inanna's descent to the underworld tells of how Inanna, who had become trapped in the underworld, had to give up a person to take her place so that she might return to the land of the living. Finding that Demuzi had not mourned her in her absence, Inanna became enraged and sacrificed Demuzi to the underworld demons, end quote. So this original love affair ends in uh, sacrificing Demuzi to the underworld demons. So not not exactly not exactly a uh, you know happily ever after there. And so that's what uh, Gilgamesh is citing of this is what you did to Demuzi. I am not going to marry you because this is how you treat your husbands. That old husband's down there with the demons right now, and I don't I don't want that. So uh, I bring this up because. In Gilgamesh, this Demuzi is is called out by Gilgamesh as a reason to reject Ishtar, Inanna, uh, as as wife. But in in Hedawana, uh, in Hedawana is talking about Demuzi as well, and and so this is where it comes up in the exaltation of Inanna. Here is this. This is by um, in Hedawana here. So, Queen, beloved of heaven, your holy heart is great. May it come back to me. Darling lover of the dead Demuzi, your rule extends from zenith to horizon. End quote. So here in, in Hedawana is is talking about Demuzi and uh, kind of praising Inanna for <laughs> what, what she did to Demuzi. So in Gilgamesh, you have a rejection, but in here... It's almost a praise, and Hedawana is almost praising her. Darling lover of the dead, Demuzi, your rule extends from zenith to horizon. So that's a, that's a little scary of, of uh, praising someone for, for that. But that's, that's, uh, con- that's one connection point here um, 
uh, obviously the the goddess Ishtar, but then uh, the this Demuzi, this this shepherd god Demuzi, who uh, gets pretty bad end of the of the stick there. One thing I um, appreciated in Sophus Hell's essays was just the ambiguity of Inhedewana. Um, there are just simply a lot of things that we can't and don't know. And so he'll present both sides of an argument and both sides of, of what people think about uh, as basic as did Inhedewana actually write this or were these written later and attributed to her? Um, so a, a lot of just those types of questions that we may find out someday, or we just may never, never know. And I'm glad that he did that. I'm glad he didn't just say one way or another, like, this is absolutely this way. Um, he thinks the evidence lines in the way that, that Inhedewana did write, uh, especially the first two hymns in this book. Uh, but, but, uh, I'm, I'm glad that, that he went into those different things. And that that's one of the things you can find in these essays. So as for main themes, uh, someone, someone on Instagram, uh, a friend, after I read this, uh, she asked, what are the, what are the main themes of Inhedewana? And this is what I wrote back. I said, the gods are unpredictable. And by extension, the world is ruled by chaos. So change occurs through praising the gods and requesting help. And if one god doesn't help, switched to the next one. These were just some themes that came up. So it, it's neat. In 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 Hedawana, she's she's um, she's asking for help from uh, one of the gods, and that god doesn't answer her. And so she just goes on to Inanna, the the next god, and and, and asks her. Uh, one other cool idea that comes up in this book is that of the weaver. And so let me read. Um, read this part here. In the temple hymns, Inhedewana is mentioned in a postscript to the last of the 42 hymns, which states, the weaver of the tablet was Inhedewana. My king, something has been born which had not been born before. The metaphor of authorship is an, is an act of weaving, as an act of weaving, went on to become a tremendously popular trope throughout literary history. It is found in countless cultures, cultures, periods, and contexts, and is probably the single most commonly used description of how texts are made. It is Im embedded in the English word text, which shares its origins with the word textile. Literally, a text is something woven. In the temple hymns, this image is combined with another key metaphor for literary creation, that of the poem being born, of the text be, be, uh, coming into being for the first time, end quote. I, I just love that. So you've got this uh, idea at the end of, of the temple hymns where it says the weaver of the tablet was in Hedawana. And then you just think of our word text and, and the 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 similarity or, or the connection with textile and, and weaving, uh, that, that a text is something woven. But, but I just like that, that imagery as well of, of a story being woven together, uh, as opposed to just thrown out there or, or just I, any, any other way that you, you, you would view a story. The, the way it's presented here is that in Hedawana is, is weaving this together. And then just how that has, has been with us for, for all these years since since then. I, I think that's really cool. The other just amazing connection point in, in Hedawana here is, um, is, is one with Agatha Christie, of all people. And so she wrote a book called Murder in Mesopotamia. And uh, let me just read this 
this part here. Catherine Woolley is today best remembered, if she is remembered at all, as the inspiration for Louis Leitner, the main victim of Agatha Christie's murder in Mesopotamia. Christie and Woolley met in 1928 when Christie was visiting the archaeological excavation at Ur, where Woolley was serving as second in command. During her visit to Ur, Christie struck up a romance with her future husband, Max Malawan, with whom she would travel back to Iraq for many seasons of excavation. Woolley made a strong impression on Christie. Uh, and then we go further. It was the excavation that, that she helped lead, which uncovered, among many other things, the Temple of Nana, the Gippar of the High Priestess, the Disc of Enheduanna, the Cylinder Seals of Enheduanna's Servants, many manuscripts of Enheduanna's poems, the inscription of, of uh, in, Inanadu, and the Museum uh, of any Galdi Nana. Our knowledge of Inhedewana and her successors in, is in large part thanks to Woolley's effort. End quote. So Agatha Christie is friends with this Woolley, Catherine Woolley, um, and and then uh, with her future husband, Max Malowin. They are doing this excavation, and what they come across, and what Agatha Christie later, later wrote about in Murder in Mesopotamia, uh, her, her fiction work, is where a lot of this was discovered, where where a lot of these works of Inhedewana and um, just some other things that we that we have about Inhedewana, where they were discovered, and that is just that's so cool. I mean, you could almost make that into a into a, a film. Let me close up this section with with some questions that that I had that came up as I was reading Inhedewana, and I presented them to Sophus Hell, the translator of this of this book and the the writer of the essays. Uh, I, I I sent them uh, I sent him these these few questions. He was gracious to answer them, and uh, I, I found the answers to be very helpful. So my my first question to him is, what is a hymn in the sense of the, the book talks about, uh, the, the front of the book says the complete poems of Enhedewana, but then on the inside, it's the, in, it's the hymn of Enhedewana, uh, or it's the hymn to Inanna, uh, the temple hymns. So what's the difference between hymn and a poem is, and my question was, is, are we to understand that a hymn is something that is, is sung? And he said, uh, this is his reply, he said, the oral performance of the poems is a, is a bit of a mystery, but no, the distinguishing factor is not whether they are hymns. I use the term hymn for a poem whose main purpose seems at, uh, to be the glorification of a deity, ruler, or the like. Truth be told, we have no real evidence about whether and how they would have been performed. The exaltation statement that it is recited by a Gala priest is a tantalizing glimpse, but no more than that, end quote. So I love that. I, I, I should have known, I should have thought that, that a hymn would be distinguished just by uh, the main purpose of it being to glorify a ruler, a god, a deity, uh, something like that. Um, but I was thinking maybe it was because it was it was sung or something. But that that helped me just in in understanding this because we've got the complete poems uh, would be would the poems be something that were recited and then but we're talking about hymns when we're, we're reading these. But we can think of a hymn as something that would be written to a ruler or or a god. Um, I, the second question I asked is did this did this lead into a direction of monotheism. And the reason I ask that is, especially in the one, in the one hymn, um, Inhedewana is raising Inanna above all the other gods. And so if the, if society of culture at that time is, is largely around just all these different gods and, and they're all doing different things. And then Inhedewana in her poem is kind of saying, well, uh, actually Inanna can do all these things. And, she, she, you know, she's the greatest and, and, 
she's elevating this God above the other. Does that, does that move in a direction of monotheism? And so that, that was kind of the gist of my question. And, uh, Sophus Hell responded with this as for the monotheism. Yes. And no, one can imagine a sliding scale with monotheism at one end and a completely flat polytheism at the other, at the other. And Hedewana might've pushed the scale a little towards monotheism, but not much. We might call the poem henotheist because it singles out one deity out of the many without denying the others their place. The truly radical step towards monotheism comes at the end of the second millennium BC when all sorts of Babylonian gods are reconfigured as aspects of the supreme god, who in the meantime had become Marduk. But by that time, Inhedewana had been forgotten. End quote. And the last question I asked, and, and this ties into the most recent episode with ancient Egypt, and uh, I, I did a segment about the heretic pharaoh Akhenaten, where he just, he shifted everything, every belief. There's, um, there's one God, there's not many, there's, uh, there's no more mummies and all that. I just, I was wondering, did Aka, would Akhenaten have ever read in Hedwana? So would the works of Inhedwana ever have reached ancient Egypt? Uh, there were trade routes, uh, would, would these ideas, would, would this poem have, have reached that area to where possibly Akhenaten would have been influenced in this direction of monotheism, which is where he took ancient Egypt in uh, like the 1300s BC. And so here's Sophus Hell's response. He said, for that, for that same reason, there is no chance that the poems would have been read by Akhenaten and little chance that they would have reached Egypt in any period. What is more likely, however, is that Enheduanna left an imprint on Akkadian literature that shaped the new poetic tradition, even after she herself had been forgotten. This is a topic that is yet to be mapped by scholarship, but one can easily imagine Enheduanna's hymns shaping, on some level or other, other hymnic texts that in turn ended up having a wider impact on the ancient Near East. But again, that process is very foggy at the moment. End quote. And then my my final question to him, and uh, I'm nerding out here. I, I, this is just something that, that I was interested in. But I asked if uh, Abram, since Abram in the Hebrew Bible was called out of Ur, what would Abram have spoken? What language uh, around the time that that, uh, that that would have been. And so here was Sophus Hell's response. He says, as for Abram, that is far beyond my professional expertise, but as I see it, it, it's three questions in one. Was Abram a real historical person? If yes, was that person likely to have spoken Akkadian? And regardless, would Abram have been perceived as likely to speak Akkadian by the composers and or early readers of the Hebrew Bible? These are all questions to ask an Old Testament Hebrew Bible scholar, but my impression as someone on the margins of that field is probably not. Probably yes, and maybe. End quote. So I probably address that question to Dr. Jason Staples the next time I talk to him he might have a uh an idea there of of um of what abram would have what language abram would have been speaking but but i do love the the temple hymns in this book and just kind of imagining this is the world that abram i mean uh yeah more or less possibly would have would have been a part of uh in that the world that he was called out of so that, that, uh, that concludes this segment. I will go into the next segment, the one thing, my one key takeaway from Inhedewana. Well, for a one thing, my one key takeaway from Inhedewana, it, it's going to be very similar to what I said about Gilgamesh and just that this reframes and reorients so much in my head that I didn't know was there. 
uh, as, as someone just wrote to me who listens to this podcast and who has also just read Gilgamesh, she said, Gilgamesh reoriented the context of the Hebrew Bible for me. And what Inhedewana and what Gilgamesh also, but since this episode is about Inhedewana, what, what, what this book has done is just to reframe literary history in the sense of the, of a starting point of a starting author, um, and these these are these are big things. These are these are big shifts, and they're they've been really big shifts for me. Uh, and, and what I what I stated in the Gilgamesh episode was just that prior to this, I, I just with that assumption that the Bible was the first that that other works were responding to the Bible. Uh, what Gilgamesh showed is that perhaps the writers of the Hebrew Bible were responding to works that were there in the cultural atmosphere. That's a cool idea. That's something neat to think about. Now we go back even further and did in Hedwana, did this work impact Gilgamesh? Did Gilgamesh in, in turn impact the writers of the Hebrew Bible? Did the writers of the Hebrew Bible have in Hedwana? Uh, I, I don't, uh, probably maybe not. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if anyone knows, but it's just fun things to think about and, and, and to kind of pull that string. And that's, that's why I'm reading these books from oldest to newest. I, I want to pull that string through. I want to see how these all connect. And so that idea, uh, I mean, just reading through the, the poems and the hymns in this book, it's nothing earth shattering. It didn't change my life. Like there was nothing that I read in these poems that was just awe inspiring or, or full of like just incredible wisdom. Uh, I, I actually enjoyed the essays by Sophus Hell more just to kind of get the context around them and, and just to be able to understand what was actually going on. So it's not, it's not, it's not the actual text here. That's just mind blowing. It's, it's more everything around it and what this, what this means and what this, entails for literary history. At the end, in um, <clears throat> one of the final essays, Sophus Hell says this. At the same time, I strongly believe that Inhedewana is poised for another kind of rediscovery, a popular rediscovery, as her poems come to be much more widely read. Fifty years have passed, passed since the exaltation was first translated into English, but in Hedwana's third life is only just beginning. There are two reasons why the present moment is particularly propitious for an Ed, in Hedwana revival. The first is that we are currently wis, witnessing a surge of interest in ancient literature. Fresh translations and retelling of classic works are reaching ever wider audiences, and people all over the world are turning to the ancient past for answers and comfort. And quote, I'll, I'll stop there. I'm going to go into the next section in just a second. But but just to comment on that quickly, I mean, that that's, yes, that this is why I'm doing the Great Books Project. There, I have this uh, surge of interest in ancient literature. I've, I've, um, I, that's, that's, that's why I'm reading through the great books. So yes, I, 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 I connect with that. And then uh, Sophus Hell goes on to say, the second reason why Inhedwana is now more relevant than ever is that the current return to the classics is accompanied by another con contrary notion, motion, an expansion of the canon. There is a hunger for forgotten voices, especially those of women and those from beyond the West, which has led to a re-examination of literary history, a search for the new within the old. 
The past decades have brought home the realization that far, far too long gender and geography have conspired to keep out of the literary canon works of great beauty and import. And Hedwana should not be valued solely as a female or non-Western poet, since the significance of her hymns transcends such categories. Uh, skipping now to, to, to the end of this. Uh, a history of literature that starts within Hedwana would be a different kind of history, one whose shape we have yet to discover. The past is always changing, and who better to spearhead that change than this ancient poet of paradox and power? End quote. I love that. Per perfect. I love it. All right, so to recap, uh, Sophus Hell starts off, what would the history of Western literature look like if it began not with Homer and his war-hungry heroes, but with a woman from ancient Iraq who sang her hymns to the goddess of chaos and change? Sophus Hell also says that uh, this, uh, or he, 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 um, he quotes someone else who says that this is the world's first bestseller. And that, that was in the section about the the scribes, the uh, the students copying this text, that this would have just this. There, there are we have a number of copies of it, and, and a lot of them are, are destroyed in different parts, so we don't have a full copy of it. But this this is <laughs> the world's first bestseller. Uh, it's also the the first work we have attributed to an author, and not only an author but a female author, a priestess from Ur. If you get this book, and I highly recommend that you do, please get it from Landmark Booksellers. I will link to that in the show notes. I ordered some directly from Yale University Press, and we have those on sale on our, on our uh, online store, and we can ship those anywhere in the U.S. But if you get this, you're going to enjoy the poems, but gosh, the essays at the end are just so good and so helpful. The reframing, uh, just what an exciting time to be alive when scholars are going through these tablets that we have recently excavated. They're reading these works. Who knows what else we might get? Who knows uh, with we might get a, a full version of Gilgamesh. We might get a full version of Inhedewana. We might get more stories. We might discover an even older first author. These are just such cool things and just neat, uh, uh, such a neat time to be alive. I loved the connection to Gilgamesh and in thinking of this ancient world with these stories that, uh, the, that these students would have been copying in Hedewana, they would have been copying Gilgamesh. That is so cool to think about. We're talking 3,000 plus years ago uh, when, when these students would have been copying these these things. And then just, I got, I have to close with the timing that it's just amazing that I started the Great Books Project in March of 2023 in Hedewana, the new first book ever comes out in March 2023. The timing is perfect. I, I'm so glad I came across this and that I shifted the order of the great books to now where this is number one. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you, especially if you've read in Hedwana. Um, you can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com. Let me know what you thought of this episode or the other ones. Please buy the book from the link in the show notes um, uh, to, to Landmark Booksellers. I'm business manager there at that, that bookstore. That is the best way that you could support this podcast is to buy it from, from Landmark. You can use Books of Titans as a coupon code, and that'll give you 10% off. You can also follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter. And my website, booksoftitans.com, is stock full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. I invite you to also check out my 2023 reading list, as well as my great books list of what I'll be reading over the next 10 years. I'll be back in a couple weeks, talk about the next book in the series, which will probably be the Rig Veda and the guidebook that I'm reading for that called The Hindus. 
Until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out. <laughs>